Obviously, there's a lot of spoilers. Don't complain about it. How was your day? It was pretty cool. I was reading that book about the galaxy. That big, thick one? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. What's your favorite planet? Jupiter. Yeah, no doubt. Jupiter. Okay. Because the surface of his atmosphere is a storm that's been raging for like a thousand years. And the eye of that hurricane is so huge that it could just swallow the whole earth. Yeah, that's why it's my favorite planet. That's wild. Mm-hmm. What's yours? first ones that we discovered that humans discovered so there's like a lot of cool ancient myths about it and stuff I changed my mind what I like Galactus Galactus isn't a planet yeah but he eats planets Welcome, everyone, to Video Games Are the Worst Thing on Earth, Nerd Movie Club Edition. With me, as always, is Alton. Cheddar Goblin. And our <laughs> beloved guest, Misandry, joining us for a third time. Hell yeah, getting them frequent collaborator credits. That's what we call them. And I am hosting uh, this time because we are talking about a movie. Reese, what is a movie? A movie is a really long YouTube video essay that's fictional. Oh. Do you get recommendations of, like, white nationalist movies to watch afterwards? (laughs) (laughs) They come before the movie, actually. Oh, okay. (laughs) Anyway, the movie we are discussing today is Mandy. Even though it's a movie and not about video games, I still think it fits within the wheelhouse of the podcast. Because even if it's not directly referencing games, the director talked about he really wanted to avoid a lot of influence uh, from other stuff. But the one thing he did read a lot of are D&D modules. Nice. Because he said he wanted it to be like a fantasy barbarian story. So it's it's not directly obvious, but uh, this is a game gamer movie, and and in a good way because it's tabletop, not video games. So. It has capital T themes. Mandy, I thought was an extremely strange sequel slash prequel, maybe to Matilda. <laughs> You're trying to put it on the chronology, which is the problem. This oh, is I happening see. at the same time, and it's in fact. The exact same <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, it's in the same universe. Oh. And also, 
while it's not necessarily overtly political, and I don't think the director has, has a coherent ideology, but he fucking hates Ronald Reagan and all the interviews he talks oh about how much he hates <laughs> like fascists and Nazis, etc. And so I think that that is that's still within our political He's- wheelhouse. The politics of this movie are sort of given context if you watch the previous movie, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow. I think Mandy is is super engaging despite the long, slow parts. Beyond the Black Rainbow, which I loved, but it is just 100% mood and does not give a shit about the story. Uh, so it's a little <laughs> it's a little more challenging. And I didn't watch it because I'm lazy. I, what Making me watch one movie is like trying to pull teeth, as Reese will attest to. I would like to contend that although it is narratively sparse, Beyond the Black Rainbow has a big recurring theme throughout all of it, and that is the corruption of spirituality and religious fervor, or not fervor, but like experimentation by the sort of uh, wild child era of the 60s, eventually turning into the sort of corporatized and overall cult-like mentality that you saw happen with the facility and beyond the black rainbow. Mm. Uh, I do want to talk about beyond the black rainbow a little bit, but I kind of want to pump the brakes until we get to the, uh, to the end. It's better discussed in the context of Mandy. It is. It's not a movie to watch on its own, to be perfectly honest. I love it, but it is thin. Um, so just personally, Mandy is one of my favorite movies of the past couple of years. I like that it is how kind of crowd pleasing the like revenge stuff is like the chainsaw battle and all that, but it doesn't make it easy for you. Like so much of it is kind of like the slow buildup of the love story between Mandy and red. And then even when he's doing his kind of like chainsaw battle stuff, he's not speaking at any point in that movie until the very end. It's very weird and going in its own unique direction. And that's kind of why I was compelled by it. Well, I just wanted to interject that there is a point where he stops speaking and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but it would be fair to say that this has mystical elements to it and the film goes out of its way not to clarify if they're real or not under the crimson primordial sky surrounded by the jagged rocks of the ancient volcanic mountain the wretched warlock reached into the dark embrace of the fissure until his hand touched a smooth glassy surface Cold as ice, his fist closed around the serpent's eye. Slowly he withdrew it and held it before him in the fading light of the blood-red suns. It glowed from within, a ghostly emerald light. Strange and eternal. This movie, I would call a very good example of magical realism Mm -hmm. in which magical realism is kind of is kind of a buzzword amongst the more uh, I don't want to say intellectual because I'm a dumbass, but uh, it's a bit of a buzzword amongst the uh, pretentious dumbasses. Yes, pretentious dumbasses like myself. <laughs> Before we delve too deep into it, I wanted to get your general impressions. Alton, I'm curious of whether you actually liked the movie or not. You seem to be entertained by some elements. And I know, Miss Andrea, I know you love it, but what does it mean to you? I 
enjoyed the movie because I love Nicolas Cage as an actor. I like it when he's in good movies. I like it when he's in bad movies. And every time Nicolas Cage does anything, it is simultaneously compelling and hilarious to me. And so watching him fight with uh, disgusting LSD bikers and uh, chainsaw duel with people was honestly... Uh, a really good treat, and I think that the revenge portions of this movie are are very satisfying, I would say. It's one of those movies, I think, if you can get past the initial build-up, it would appeal to people who aren't great big dorks who studied film theory. I am a great big dork who did not study film theory. Self-taught. I am, I am both. <laughs> I am both. I went to, I went to film school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a dork before then, and man, it was a lot worse after. You became a double dork. Double dork. Uh, triple dork, at least. <laughs> Reese, triple dork. So that's my take on it. It's, it is fun. It is enjoyable. It is psychedelic. The visuals are all extremely good. The film grain gives it a unique quality. I don't even know if they shot this on film, but like everything looks like it was. I'm not 100%, to be honest. I know Beyond the Black Rainbow was. I mean, this is probably shot on film, given how, like, you can definitely tell, like, the film has, like, a granularity to it. Yeah. And it doesn't have that fakeness that a lot of times they try to insert in. Yeah. It looks like something that was shot in the 80s, but, like, really high quality. What did you think about the film, Misandry? I adored it. It combined a lot of things that I look for in in a lot of media. Those a lot of things are uh, heavy metal, uh, hatred of baby boomers, mm-hmm. uh, hatred of Ronald Reagan. Hatred of hippies. Oh, God. Yeah. Hatred of hippies. Mm-hmm. Because, Fucking hippies. Yeah. Fuck hippies. Commentary on these sort of relationships of all these three, but done with a backdrop of hyperviolence. It does a very good job of, I guess, mingling cerebral and visceral. Also, uh, Cheddar Goblin. Cheddar Goblin. Yeah. Tough, tough not to love Cheddar Goblin. Reese doesn't actually like Cheddar Goblin. He told me. Wow. I, I just felt that uh, I, I, in the second rewatch, <laughs> I was a lot more accepting of Cheddar Goblin, but at the time, I was just like... What the fuck is this? And I, I embrace it as part of the weirdness of it, but I felt it was a little... I think it's great. Bit of his insert, insert goof. I mean, I'm, I'm just being, you know, a, a nitpicky dipshit in well, that moment. See, I, I, Cheddar oh Goblin came off to me, given its place in the film, or given how it exists within this film, it came off to me more like a Videodrome-like criticism of consumer culture. I would say that that's potentially true. I think that there was an element of that. To me, it seems like it takes a backseat to sort of like the inherent absurdity of just continuing to live after you've experienced a horrific tragedy. We're jumping ahead a little bit because, you know, he walks. That's just after they like sacrifice his girlfriend um, and he walks back into the house and just fucking Cheddar Goblin's playing on TV. And, you know, you can imagine that actually happening like. Nothing about the world gives a shit about you or what's just happened to you. And so you just are sort of living in this dream world where absurd fucking things are happening on the TV, even though you've just like saw someone you love die. The commercials never stop. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think any commercial after that kind of horrific moment would feel like Cheddar Goblin. So I think that's a good point. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, if you had, like, a loved one or a relative die and you just, like, saw fucking Lucky Charms on the TV after you got, like, the phone call, you'd just be, like, living in some sort of uh, absurd fantasy world. Cheddar Goblin, did you eat all the macaroni and cheese? Nothing's better than cheddar. Cheddar Goblin. So since we're starting to dig into it, it's a very basic story. It's a revenge movie. But instead of the revenge tone being all about the dude who's doing the revenge, it has the essence of the person that's being avenged. And it's it's all about how Nicolas Cage, for uh, kind of very mysterious reasons, was this kind of empty, awful person. And his connection with Mandy made him more real. And, you know, you see throughout the movie how enchanted he is with her art. <laughs> by, by, empty, by empty, awful person, Reese means he was a lumberjack. <laughs> 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 Fuck you, lumberjacks, you bitches. Have you met any lumberjacks? Come on. I haven't, actually. No, but... <laughs> I have. I have. <laughs> he, <laughs> they're all like Nicolas Cage and Mandy. He was addicted to speed (laughs) (laughs) that's appropriate well not only him being a lumberjack but there's a lot of sense that you you know he he doesn't really come alive until he's with mandy and defined by by her and Mm -hmm. i think that that makes the movie so interesting is when you get to the revenge portions the stuff that we saw before that in the first half of the movie is informing that I would say part of the mysticism of the skull gang and the, you know, fucked up alien like lights on the artifacts and stuff like that. To me, it's a question of whether that's real or whether that's how Mandy looks through her life. Because if at the start of the movie, she talks about kind of myths and legends in that one scene. Just talking about a book she's reading about this, like, sci-fi fantasy author that's, like, directly referenced later in the film. Exactly. And, you know, the I think the first line is, under the crimson primordial sky. And then there's that shot kind of, like, close to the <laughs> end of the movie where Nicolas Cage is driving under a similar sky. And so I think a lot of it, it it's it's difficult to say none of it was real. Oh. Film relationships always come off to me as, well, as forced. The dialogue is generally unnatural and like the sort mm-hmm. of Joss Whedon-esque quippy. <laughs> but the conversations between Red and Mandy, they genuinely feel like just conversations between people. Really awkward, stilted conversations between two complete weirdos. Who, who are totally to- in love. Yes, <laughs> It's stilted as hell. Like, I wanted to bring up how nobody in this movie, with, like, the exception of a couple minor side characters, are conventionally attractive. Like, the two main characters are just, like, weird, weird-looking people. I mean, Nick Cage, for one, is just, like, this scraggly-looking uh, motherfucker. He sells the idea that he is a man of the forest, applies his trade chopping down big old trees. I'm going to have to disagree in that I think Andrea Riseborough is conventionally beautiful. They just kind of lean into the kind of like a no makeup, very stripped down look for her for Mandy. 
um, mm. that it's part of their characters that they're purposefully, you know, separating themselves from the world. Uh, you know, Mandy has that fucked up scar that, you know, tells yeah. tells a story of its own. And they live in a house made of windows. That house is terrifying. <laughs> the fucking house. The insulation costs on that thing must be a bitch. You know, Mandy is doesn't have a ton of screen time, but I think the time that she does have, even in the kind of stilted conversations, you know, it's very real. And there's two clearly very damaged people. The one scene I want to talk about with Mandy, uh, she, she's telling the story about her dad having everybody kill all of those birds. Oh, my God. And it's clearly just like out of nowhere, your partner just dropping in their their origin story of why everything is fucked up with them. Um, and it's clear that that's like the the inciting incident for what has upset her so much about the world. And I mm-hmm. would argue why she sees the world in these kind of fantastical, larger than life, evil imagery that is transferred to Nicolas Cage in his revenge quest. No, I couldn't I didn't really get that much of an impression of her character you know I think the more you read into films like this the more uh, you get out of it just on a sort of first time viewing which because I only watched the movie once you know you get the impression that this is somebody who's just sort of like uh, kind of weird you definitely do get the sense that you know they are both very strange broken people uh, who find comfort in each other's company Um, So I would agree with that read of the film. To me, it's just like uh, she does lots and lots of art and she reads a lot of weird sci-fi sci-fi fantasy, like not like not just fantasy, not just sci-fi, like space fantasy. It definitely leans a lot more into the era that it is set in. The director talks about uh, one of the sparks for this and beyond the Black Rainbow is when he was a kid, he would wasn't allowed to rent horror movies, but wander around the video store horror section and look at the covers. <laughs> and he was wanted to make a movie that felt like those co- 80s covers did. So let's talk about the turn this movie takes. So we have like the, the slow buildup, like the first... 30 fucking minutes or so are like completely dedicated to them like having very quiet conversations and uh, you get to know these characters a little bit better. She wanders out the woods to look at a dead Bambi. That is a fucked up scene. The practical effects in this movie, top notch. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's very gross to look at and I was not a fan of looking at the, the gross dead deer at one o'clock in the morning. Because I wasn't sure if they were going to make it, like, do a jump scare or something. Because I thought it was just going to be like, Bruh! But uh, it's not that kind of movie. But there's a turn in this movie when she goes out for a walk down this side road. Uh, we don't really know where it is, but just, like, this dirt road out mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. She's going for a walk. And then along comes this van. Uh, and the entire film 
just turns completely red. Well, it's it's the introduction of the the demonic mm-hmm. force, Jeremiah, one of the greatest dipshits <laughs> in cinematic history. What's the matter, Jeremiah? Are you all right? No. I'm not all right. Did I do something wrong? Wrong? Everything you do is wrong. I'm so sorry, Jeremiah. Is there anything I can do to make you feel better? There is nothing you can do. It's her. I feel naked without her. Naked. Do you hear me? I... I... I said, do you hear me? Yes, Jeremiah, I hear you. Really? Because sometimes I don't think you hear anything at all. And I am truly worried about that. If you are not with me, you will not ascend. Jeremiah. Please. Just be quiet and go fetch me, Brother Swan. A fail son for the ages. Which, huge props to Linus Roach for selling that performance. It really is such a selfless performance because you, you he is so fucking pathetic in that movie in a way that is... All right, well, we're going to talk about Jeremiah since Alton brought it up. This is almost an expression, I would say, of just like total rage at the systems of control people say like there's a charlie manson vibe and that's true but it almost feels like it's going in a slightly different more bougie direction because it's clear jeremiah used to have money from the way he dresses and acts if i may uh this is what i was talking about earlier when i said i feel like that beyond the black rainbow will give context to a lot of the commentary that'd be happening in this specifically the degradation of the the ideal of the wild child absolutely the institute beyond the black rainbow uh Mm -hmm. jeremiah sand in this movie the cult that he has it is all feeding into that worldview that panos cosmatos clearly has you know what Jesus' big mistake was? Huh? He didn't offer up a sacrifice in his stead. The cruciform is a constant reminder of that. I wrote down a quote here from him that I thought it was just such a, it's just a hilarious, like, dipshit, narcissist thing to say. He says, after he uh, is talking to Nicolas Cage about, uh, you know, how much better he is than him, he says, you know what Jesus' big mistake was? He didn't offer up someone else as a sacrifice instead. And I'm just like, listen, I'm not here to like support 
Christianity and Jesus shit, but like you, you didn't get that story, bud. Like that's not <laughs> that's oh, not yeah. the point. It, it's just <laughs> you being like, I want to be worshipped, and this is easy to talk about. But I just I want to offer up the fat kid to be sacrificed <laughs> instead of myself. Yeah, he also said that like he wears like a crucifix, and there's like some there's like some Christian. Uh, Christianity symbols in here, but like he says that he wears it to remind himself of like the mistake Jesus made. <laughs> He's just like, well, yeah, I wear it to remind myself about how Jesus. It sounds like George Bush Jr. I guess <laughs> about how Jesus should have sacrificed somebody else. Reese, you have more of a film background than I do, i.e., any. So maybe you can like chime in on this. But I feel like that the way that they focus on the shots of Jeremiah Sand and like in things involving him and his focuses, the way that they are all extremely long shots. I think it's trying to hammer home a point of like, dude's a solipsist. He is completely, oh, yeah. so completely absorbed by his own narcissism that he is sort of apotheotic. There's something about the tone of this movie. It makes me think like a structure similar to like a uh, Dante's journey through hell in the divine comedy or Orpheus, uh, and and Mm -hmm. through the underworld, but in reverse perspective. I think absolutely true. And I think he's specifically talking about Christians in the, in America and about how you could pick and choose and find decent ones. But all these big name ones are narcissists. They bend this stuff that other people believe in to their own, own devices to get what they want. And like, all he wants is to fuck chicks and be worshiped. He's not that interesting. And in a movie, that has a lot of magical, demonic elements. He never displays any of them. You know, he's always a fucking dipshit, even though there are like demon bikers and psychic chemists and all this other shit. He's the dipshit at the end of the movie that's humping the wall because he's so wrapped up in being God. He's kind of a unique character. Oh, yeah. He does not really match up with any other any other character in movies that I've seen. He has this aura of intimidation that is bought by everybody else that is trying to be sold to you by the film, but then counteractively cut down by any scene that involves Red. It kind of reminds me of little Gideon from Gravity Falls. <laughs> <laughs> That's an astute observation. I'm not familiar with Gravity Falls, but I agree. He's basically like, his character plays like a charlatan preacher, like televangelist type. Faith healer. I'm on the wiki page. She's a fraudulent child psychic whose hunger for ultimate power motivates him to manipulate and intimidate others into giving him what he wants. That's something for those real Gravity Falls heads out there. Shout out to them. Uh, One thing I want to mention before we talk about the best scene in the movie involving him cheddar goblin they, they released as like a joke his shitty folk album and on the kind of b-side there is just this insane 20 minute rant that talks about how he used to be a millionaire and he would just kill his parents uh to get their inheritance and then would just basically buy things for people to get what he wanted and just frittered all of his money away trying to become famous and after that he fucked up that he started preying on kind of like weak people in churches like presenting himself up as like a messiah figure for like dipshit hippies 
And so he's he gone from like buying influence to influencing the weak. So it definitely has that vibe to it 100%, which is why he thinks he's so good. Money propped that up and then preying on the weak propped that up. What's the difference? I hate rich people. That's my that's my character bit. That's my personality. It's all but a beautiful dream. The dream he's having right now. Won't you join us in that dream? I want to talk about his fucking weird ass people he surrounds himself with. Like we, I oh, mentioned, let's do it. I love them. I I mentioned the fucking van, and this is the first time you get introduced to like his little cadre of freaks. Brother Swan might be one of the more uh, intimidating second men I've seen in movies. He is one hundred percent the only like competent member of his team and slavishly devoted. Yeah, exactly. So he's the most competent, but also the most pathetic. Like this, when he talks about uh, let's sacrifice the fat one, and then Brother Swan's like, "Oh yeah, let's let's sacrifice that lard ass." I'm gonna make a joke, anything for you. Oh, what a good idea! Oh, and he's just and like he's doing that throughout the movie. And there's like, okay, so the fat guy we didn't mention him. He looks like a fucking. He looks like a cherub. Like, literally, like the blonde, curly hair. Uh, he looks, like, straight out of a painting of a cherub. And he, like, in the first part of the movie, uh, when they come to... when they, they, Well, I don't want to get into the summoning of the, the bikers, because that's, like... There's so much to dissect from what happens, but, like... Uh, he also has a guy who has a mullet who constantly has his fucking mouth open. In one of the most aggressively receding hairlines I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then there are like two women who 100% are sort of like abused and take like a backseat in the power structure of the cult. Well, one of them is kind of a little bit more matriarchal. No, she's Mm -hmm. down. But like the sister Marlene, the older, clearly, like one of the best scenes of the movie is when... He's talking to Mandy, and you can look at the faces of each one of his uh, dipshit members. The two kind of weird rednecky guys are just fucking zoned out. They don't give a shit. Uh, Sister Lucy, the younger uh, woman, is also pretty zoned out, but like involved. And Sister Marlene is just fucking so jealous of Mandy. And Brother Swan is so happy to be there, and lo- he's, he's holding Jeremiah's album. And then, like, Jeremiah takes it from him to put it on. It's it's such a great kind of, like, mix of, like, Marlene and Swan are the two, like, you know, real lieutenants. And the rest of them are just lost dipshits that are just taking too much LSD. I'm sorry for all this fuss and muss. But when I saw you, on the road the other day. You called out to me. Silently. And I listened. 
Let's let's talk about the thing that incites the violence and then we'll get to the violence where Jeremiah Sand puts on his little spiel where he tries to be as charming and compelling and manipulative as possible. And he puts on his dumb folk record. Uh, I think it's called like the uh, it's not I can't Amulet remember. Amulet of the Weeping Maze. Oh, that's it. Oh, it's uh, so fucking pretentious. It sucks so much ass. Oh, and I wanted to just get into his motivation. So he glances her out of the window of the van when they that's when he first sees her and he becomes fucking obsessed. Uh, so he. I would like to say this is one of them. Af- those aforementioned extremely long shots of Jeremiah Sand and his obsessions. Yeah, and and he's depressed afterwards because he's like throwing a little temper tantrum. I can't have her, this random woman I saw on the road. Exactly. Um, and that's when they we get the whole sequence of him summoning the biker gang and everything. That's that's the inciting. That's that's the first moment you get where you're just like, hang on, is, is magic real in this movie? Because he's like, <laughs> do you have the horn of Abraxas? And he's just like, Oh, yes. And Brother Swan pulls it out of a bag and we get like a, a, a close up shot of the this weird looking fucking volcanic rock thing. And it's just like there's a green strobe light going on and like spooky music <laughs> as they, we see this thing get pulled out of the bag. And then it cuts to like the wide shot or, or the shot of both of them. And it's like the green strobe light's gone. And so you're just like, what what is happening? Uh, it's like, do you know how to use it? And he's like, yes. And then, then we get to the scene where they drive out into the middle of the woods to try and summon the fucking demonic bikers. Yeah, and it's like the that artifact they have, they have that green strobe light on it that's like very alien and otherworldly. And there's almost no other green in the movie except when he has these alien artifacts. And, it, and to me, it's like you can... There's many different ways that you can interpret it, but it it honestly feels to me like this is just these weird dipshit things that Jeremiah Sand made up, and there's just a lot of extra style added when you first see them, because we're looking through this of the lens of Mandy, who uh, kind of like really takes all these myths and legends and dark fantasy uh, things to heart. Yeah, and I feel like that's pretty well expressed by the uh, the heavy metal animations, which are fantastically rendered, but can't really express that very well in a uh, in an audio format. But on, I would like to say on the Horn of Abraxas of his two movies, that's another theme that appears in his movie. There is an unexplained object. I say unexplained in every sense. All you know uh-huh. about the Horn of Abraxas is it's there. And it's somehow connected to the demon bikers. Well, in Beyond the Black Rainbow, there is a uh, a dagger, I believe, called the Devil's Teardrop. All you know about the dagger, it is special. You don't know how, but all you know is that there is some vague significance on this dagger. I think that's also reflective of Panos's uh, animosity towards the sort of blind like occultism. To get back to Mandy, so they, he has his little temper tantrum. The de- Demon bikers are summoned and brought and bring Mandy 
and they get her super fucking high. They give her LSD, and then just to like as like part of the fucked up ritual, they have this giant wasp horrifying that stings that stings her and it is insanely horrifying and they're like all right now we're going to sell you be part of this cult <laughs> and that's like um a sparrow hawk i think it was like this fucking huge ass wasp that brave wilderness did like us getting stung by it and like it's apparently one of the most painful stings in the world um and it's still fucking moving when they pull it out of like the preservative which is weird brined in something. <laughs> and then Jeremiah does his pitch. He plays the folk music and he he shows his dick. He's like, let's get ready to fuck now that I've convinced oh, you. Yeah. You do, like you get full on full on dick here. There's no clever censorship. You are seeing it. I think the thing that most resonates with a lot of people is Mandy's just a tarantula like, hawk. I got it wrong. Sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, I they're they're fucked up, and it's good. I know they're fucking huge. The tarantula hawk, which is bigger than Jeremiah's dick by far, <laughs> and she just starts laughing at his lame, shitty penis. <laughs> Not just a laugh either. Like it's angry, it's haunting and belittling. It is specifically an emasculating laugh. <laughs> Shut up! 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 Don't you fucking look at me! Don't you fucking look at me! Don't look at me! Don't you fucking look at me! And she knows what she's doing when she applies it. The first thing she says to him is like, I think the Reaper is coming. Like she, she knows that you know what will probably happen to her if she laughs at his like shitty dick <laughs> to make him as feel as bad as possible. It's an amazing scene. He's trying. He gets his dick out, and she starts laughing at him. And then he just trying to like get it up by like jacking off <laughs> and then screaming at everybody to not look. He's like, "Shut up! Don't look at me! Don't look at me!" <laughs> it's so funny. Just while his shitty music is playing in the background. This is this scene is like shot in the presentation of, hey, uh, Mandy is currently tripping. Let's visually represent that for you. So everything yeah. is like slowed down and has ghosting and every every scene is painfully suspended. They really take their time with her discomfort and the way and him trying to be benevolent to her it's seductive he's like i'm so sorry for all the fuss and muss like he thinks he's being seductive and to if you are like a total dumbass in 1983 and your brain's been burned out by drugs you know maybe this works you finally have somebody who's pretending to give a shit about you uh but this is you know he he's finally found the person that this who's going to think this is the stupidest thing ever because this is what the audience is thinking. You're just like, Oh Jesus, what the fuck is going to happen now is, is, are we going to be seeing some ugly shit in Mandy? And we do see some shit, but she owns him so hard before he responds by burning her alive. (laughs) There's still a lot to be said about, to use a terrible, like 
trope codification of it, of fridging the uh, female characters for the uh, motivation of a male character. But there is no situation surrounding her death where Mandy was not like staring death straight in the face and accepting it confidently. She was in complete control and she accepted it. That's the criticism of the movie that I kind of when I read reviews and stuff, that's the toughest to debate. Like it's even, you know, if it's flipping it on its head, it's still a basic bitch revenge movie in some senses and that and it's not a feminist movie. It's, oh God, it's a no. movie but obviously I think it's okay and I think I think a lot of women responded to it. That's part of kind of why it works. It's interesting that it's kind of from this masculine perspective and still has the laughing at the dick moment with the knowledge it would be so emasculating. That laughing scene, like, it stuck with me for, like, weeks. I think that you are completely correct in that more than other revenge films, it's actually about the person who is being avenged more so than, like... I mean, it's the fucking name of the movie. (laughs) It's like, the movie is about her. Like, it has Nicolas Cage and his, like, revenge, but, like, the whole movie is about her. Uh, I think that's unusual for revenge films. It's a point that was brought up earlier, but it's good to reiterate it. The film very clearly sets up that Red does not exist without Mandy. Yeah, he definitely has, like, personality death. I'm not even talking about, like, personality because like the hallucinations he has even beyond her frankly horrific death scene like suggests that mandy has fundamentally changed him in an extreme way there is no red without mandy another pearl wasted before swine yeah Take a good look, you worthless piece of human excrement. This is the tainted blade of the pale knight, straight from the abyssal lair. Before he kills her, he goes, they have him like tied up with barbed wire in a shed. Um, And he goes in to taunt him because he just got his dick laughed at. Um, and they stab him with something they call the Tainted Blade of the Pale Knight. The Horn of Abraxas and the Tainted Blade of the Pale Knight are 100% like D&D items you would pick up. When I call it a story of it of a barbarian, I mean that in the most literal Dungeons and Dragons sense. Clearly influenced by you know Conan the Barbarian, which had a lot of Lovecraft stuff and, st- and horror in there too. Even the director says that like he understands why this is a horror movie and the, there are horrifying things that happen so into it, but he calls it a dark fantasy rock opera because to him it's a lot more about these artifacts and this weird otherworldly shit that happens and the the metal aesthetic. It's metal as fuck. It's pretty metal. We're moving through this move movie pretty slowly, but that's because it's like There's a lot to get into in every single scene, like with the visuals and the thematic qualities. This is a movie I would describe as like slow, 
but not a single scene is wasted. Yeah, I agree. And that's why um, I think even if the opening of the movie is languid, I, I don't think that there is a frame that should be cut. This simply because getting all of that character from Mandy beforehand, because it's so Mandy focused up until she dies, is important to inform the rest of the fantastical stuff mm. when it, when Red takes over. From the point he freaks out in the bathroom, he's going on his own journey. That weird bathroom. <laughs> Nicholas Cage in his fucking underwear, just chugging uh, some kind of alcohol. Is it like, was it Everclear? Vodka. I'm pretty sure, oh, yeah. Vodka. Rubbing it all over his wounds, just... In a very like it's a pretty fucking emotive scene to to be perfectly honest. As much as I love Nicolas Cage, I think he, especially lately, there are movies where he doesn't feel like being emotive. Really, he just kind of has a Nicolas Cage thing that he phones in, and even I don't want to say he struggles to reach that kind of place. But this, it's like there's a man in physical, emotional anguish, screaming, and it's like it's hilarious to me that. You know, when it's all said and done, the top three films on his highlight reel on In Memoriam is him going to be screaming in his tidy whities The best actor goes to Nicolas Cage for Mandy. And they just show that clip of him drinking alcohol in the bathroom. I mean, it's an incredible scene. And I think it, I think that and the scene where Mandy laughs at his dick are the two scenes that anchor the movie emotionally um, for me. And I think for a lot of other people, just because it's like you get a sense of where this movie is coming from. Very few other movies would dare to laugh at a dude's dick, no matter how pathetic, <laughs> even though it should be commonplace. <laughs> the, the director calls Nicolas Cage like a golem, like G-O-L-E-M. Not uh, the guy from Lord of the Good Rings, man. which in literally every single interview I read where the director said he was a golem, they thought he meant the guy from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> My precious Mandy. You know, I think you, Alton, you've sold me pretty well on the Cheddar Goblin scene because that, that, like, just the unreality of it leading into the bathroom horror scene, leading into the badass forge scene <laughs> the scene that just like it makes so little sense if you consider it from like a, a from a realistic standpoint where he just goes into a fucking he has a fucking blacksmith shop apparently where he j just makes like this weird ass axe in the script it is called the beast and whenever it's referenced to it's like he sets the beast on the ground <laughs> oh my god symbolically reese what does that scene is it like him building a new, I guess, a new person in response to, like, his old life being destroyed? There's the two things. There's the him getting the Reaper, which I think is a reference of, like, you only get little flashes of it. He was some kind of, like, bad human being before. And the Reaper represents that. And I think the, the beast, that sword, is this new darkness that is coming from him. And the Reaper, by the way, is a crossbow, So, in case anyone asks. So yeah, so I think Reese is 100% correct. It is implied that he used to be uh, a bad dude in the fact that he goes to like his old army buddy? 
like the guy in like this olive drab jacket. Uh, Bill uh, well, Duke, who from yeah. from Predator, a character actor that was very prevalent in the eighties in Predator and Commando, playing the same character. And he's playing the same character here, but like, what if he was uh, fucked over by the VA and had to live out in the woods <laughs> with a camper? Pretty because much. Reagan. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> I think uh, what we can say, we can reveal now, the ultimate spoiler of Mandy is that uh, Ronald Reagan was the actual villain of the film. Unironically, yes, I think <laughs> there's a reason he turns off Ronald Reagan like spiritual awakening speech at the start of the movie Mm. because this is all about the fascist systems of control coming to hurt people who are just fucking trying to get by so what you hunting jesus freaks i don't know that we're the season man yeah well just tell me man they lit her on fire they were weirdo Hippie types! <laughs> Whole bunch of them. Then there, there was a muscle. It didn't make any sense. They were bikers and gnarly psychos and. It's crazy evil. My, my other answer to like the question of the, the sword he forges is honestly he thought it was cool. <laughs> he's interested only up until a point of what the themes and what things mean are. I think he's like, all right, you sat through the love stuff. Here's the sword. He's going to kill some well, people. I, think, I don't think it's because he specifically thought it was cool. I think he made that because Mandy would have thought it was cool. Exactly. That is 100% true. I agree with that. Can we just say that, like, the bikers... Let's get back to the the bikers, because he gets his fucking bow. He gets his fucking bow. He gets his fucking axe, and he just goes out. He gets exposition about who these guys were. The His old army buddy tells that they used to work for an LSD running, uh, like, gang. And then, apparently, they were using too much of their shipment, and they, they got the LSD manufacturer angry, so he gave them a bunch of really bad lsd uh so that's sort of like the the movie being like okay these aren't actually demons these are just fucked up bikers but they look like cenobites i think that's more people trying to come up with an explanation because the behaviors of the bikers the way they act like you saw how that one got hit by a car Mm -hmm. there is clearly like a something supernatural about them i don't mean supernatural in the literalist sense i mean like have you seen the original assault on precinct 13 uh i've not a note assault on precinct 13 is like this really tense thriller it's one of the first movies directed by john carpenter the conceit of the movie is that this precinct is being assaulted from uh, on all sides by this gang however the gang is like being presented more as like a a force of nature rather than a group of people these at least initially come off more like a force of nature more like a uh more like a supernatural entity than something that can just be dealt with uh for one that one is just always wet (laughs) they're all wet (laughs) they're all like extremely wet boys they squish when they move yeah That one is just, what if Pinhead, but more. Uh-huh. Pinhead, but, like, bolts instead of... Then you got Butterball with the bladed uh, sh- strap-on like, dildo thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know if it's a strap on or if it's just like grafted onto his pelvis. It was like That's part fun. of his like leather underwear. I think part of what the purpose of that story is, there's value and every fantastical element in this movie of creating mystery around it. Mm. Are these demon bikers or are these just LSD burnouts who have gotten way too into piercing? Certainly both sides, you know, are kind of unbelievable. So what you create in your mind in the middle is what compels you and propels you forward. But it's like both of you said, everything in this movie is incidental to the central narrative point of Mandy. Yeah, exactly. There's a version of this reality where they look a whole lot more normal. And just because Bandy has been infused in the Nicolas Cage so deeply that he's just perceiving things on a different level. I think there's different ways you can go with it. They are 100% Cenobites, but on motorcycles. It's legit. Clive Barker would definitely be into this movie. I mean, I agree that they've got that feel and each one has this like metal demon aesthetic that is that is very like unified in their presentation but i think you know that's that's kind of where they're coming from and they're definitely presented to be demonic like at the end when you you hear him them talking and he's like do you worship death do you seek death and he's like i don't want to talk about that (laughs) and they just sound fucked up they sound like darth vader that scene is just so funny (laughs) the sort of line interactions are funny it's pretty clearly present that red is sort of losing his grip on what is actually important here (laughs) quote unquote important because all that matters to red is lost also it shows when they summon them that they give them a jar full of this weird gray goop and then when he gets captured by the bikers and fights his way out he like finds a gray jar of like half drunk gray goop he sniffs it and he like sticks like his pinky finger in to just like get a tiny taste it cuts to like this vision of his mind going to hell where like his face melts off and explodes it's the heavy metal animation yeah it transports you to the heavy metal world that's supposedly the lsd that uh, was given to them and i think that's how he he tracks down the chemist in the next scene is that he sees that kind of radio tower power line thing and we see that in the later scene when he goes to visit him. Hello, my gaggle of honking geese. We talked about Mandy for such a long time, I've decided to break it up into two episodes. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, check out part two. And if you're not enjoying what you're listening to, I respect your totally wrong opinion that I hate. All right, later.